This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Weight in and of itself is not a problem. I mean, if it's cardiovascular function or something on their blood values that is out of range, um, if something in the dietary pattern is heavier on one nutrient and lower on the other, uh, these are all you know individual things. You know, what is the person actually? What are their complaints? You know, maybe they don't have any complaints about you know their cardiovascular function or whatever that is. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I continue to get to talk to the most amazing guests on my podcast, and today is going to be a no different. We get to have conversations about parenthood, child health, development, parental mindset, and so much more. So thank you so much for tuning in and being here and all of the reviews and love you show the Pete's Doc Talk podcast. Today's guest is Diana Rice. She is a registered dietitian, podcast host, owner of Tiny Seed Family Nutrition, which provides weight-inclusive nutrition, education, and guidance for families. And she's on Instagram as anti.diet.kids, helping families with nutrition and weight-inclusive education. Thank you so much for joining me today, Diana. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. And we are talking about approaching conversations about our child's weight and health in a productive way. This is a topic that's so important to me because I do believe that as physicians who do talk to a lot of families about percentiles and weight, it could be approached in a more sensitive manner that actually leads to more quote unquote results. What I mean by results is we want to have the child understand health and not numbers, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. like, why are we doing these things versus, oh, you need to lose X amount of weight. And I think a lot of weight loss becomes goal focused on numbers when we really should be approaching it a different way. So I'm so excited that we get to chat about this. But before we get started, tell me more about yourself, why you do the work that you do and what brought you to do that. Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, I'm a registered dietitian. Um, that is the credential that um, you know nutrition professionals um, who are medical professionals generally have here in the U.S. And I pursued becoming a dietitian. Um, it wasn't my first career. I actually worked in media for a bit, and I got so interested in just writing about food and you know family feeding and things like that that I decided to go down the rabbit hole of going back to school and becoming a dietitian. And even though I 
I didn't have my own kids at the time. I now have two kids, um, two little girls, uh, but I didn't have my own kids at the time. I was still, I don't know what it was. I had such a heart for family nutrition and I always knew that I wanted to go into it. Um, my dietetic internship, which is a year that we do uh, under supervised training of other dietitians, I was able to you know, pick uh, rotations that would allow me to learn more about family health um, and you know, yada, 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 started working in this field, had my own kids. Um, I didn't focus quite so much on uh, this term weight inclusivity that you and I have been using so far um, mm -hmm. until uh, the past couple years, maybe the past five years, um, which is when uh, I started learning more and more and more about the harms of weight stigma, which I'm sure is something that we're going to talk about and just how very dangerous this is for kids to grow up in homes where the focus is on uh, weight loss or dieting or good food, bad food. Yeah. Um, this all became actually very new information to me as I became a parent and started talking to other parents um, because uh, interestingly, it is not the environment that I grew up with myself. I think that my own parents, my mom in particular, um, themselves grew up in diet focused homes. And, you know, even though this is a couple decades uh, before it got trendy, wanted um, just to put an end to that and just never talked about good food, bad food or dieting or anything uh, when I was growing up. So I ended up growing up with a very healthy relationship with food and am able like the way I talk to my own kids about, you know, whether it's soda or candy or vegetables, I feel like I'm able to do it in a very natural way that doesn't come nearly as naturally to people who, who didn't have that immense privilege. Um, so I feel like that is my role is, um, you know, helping parents change their language around food, you know, learn ways that are going to be more constructive for their kids. And then also um, from a medical and scientific perspective, unpack some of the learning that they've done so far mm -hmm. of body size is so important. You can't let your kids get fat, all this stuff, sort of unpack mm -hmm. that and really get to the root of uh, raising healthy, thriving kids. And that's why it's so important to me is that I really, really, really believe um, that this path of you know, anti-diet weight inclusivity is the way forward to raise really well-adjusted kids who have a good relationship with food in their bodies, which is ultimately going to do so much for their health. Oh, I love it. And I love that we're talking about what we're talking about, which is sort of how we have these conversations about weight. And well, other, one of the questions I have for you is, you know, there are certain situations where we have to talk about it, right? Like mm -hmm. in terms of a medical concern, but sure. we want to be very understanding of that. So I posted about this on my Instagram, like I would say a few months ago. Um, and then people definitely understood, but a lot of medical professionals, especially people who are in endocrinology or mm -hmm. people who are in, you know, adult medicine or pediatric medicine are like, we have to tell them, like, they have to mm -hmm. hear that they're obese. They have to hear that they're mm -hmm. overweight. Like they're going to, you know, there's a lot of medical issues. And I'm like, I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I, I do respect that. We want to risk, like to understand that we're not allowing anyone to just not care about their overall health, but mm -hmm. terminology, right. The way we speak about it, I think does matter from a psychological perspective too. Um, and I, you know, I, I've worked at two different practices um, as a practicing physician and one practice we never really discussed or labeled BMIs. And then the other practice I'm at, it was like one of those things that they would chart review and say, Hey, you didn't comment on the BMI. You didn't log, um, you know, document it or code it. Right. And I'm like, I don't want to code it. Like it's, we talked, you know, we, we may have talked about it, but it's not an issue to me. Like it's BMI already. I don't love as for pediatrics, um, or in general, but, um, it's a great conversation to have. Um, and I guess my first question is 
how we as a medical community can change how we approach weight discussion. You know, what is the, I guess, what is the not so great ways or the risk of a clinician focusing on a child's weight during an appointment? Is there a right way that we can speak about this and how can we approach it in a sensitive way in well visits? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, from my perspective, I think that making weight the problem, like you're saying, like, how can we we have to tell them that they're obese um, is uh, instead of whatever else is going on with the health of the child or the adult is actually quite unfair to mm-hmm. the individual in terms of them receiving excellent medical care. Um, you know, weight in and of itself is not a problem. I mean, if it's cardiovascular function yes. or something on their blood values that is out of range, um, if something in the dietary pattern is heavier on one nutrient and lower on the other, uh, these are all, you know, individual things. You know, what is the person actually, what are their complaints? You know, maybe they don't have any complaints about, you know, their cardiovascular function or whatever that is. Um, so focusing on weight alone, which we actually have quite a lot of evidence that it's not a very modifiable factor. There is not a whole lot that we can do, um, apart from, you know, bariatric surgery or some of these weight loss drugs that really produces sustained weight loss. Um, focusing on that is really unfair to the individual instead of, delivering medical care (laughs) um, for the actual issues and medical concerns that they're facing. And most of the time, those medical concerns have interventions independent of weight loss that are far more sustainable than um, attempting to diet and Mm -hmm. carry far less risk because attempting to diet for weight loss is the number one predictor of a child developing an eating disorder or an adult developing an eating disorder. The other risk is that we um, get into this cycle of yo-yo dieting, weight cycling. Even kids can experience this. And that's, you know, any adult who's ever attempted Weight Watchers or whatever has probably noticed the weight comes off and then you can't sustain the diet anymore and it comes back on again. And what we see is that it actually comes back on uh, to a higher degree. We gain more weight than we lost in the first place, which Mm -hmm. um, is a protective biological mechanism when your body thinks that you're experiencing a famine. It's like, well, I know one thing I can do to survive and it's store more fat cells. Mm -hmm. Um, But the problem with that is that it's not just about the number on the scale. There are so many physiological consequences. It harms our cardiovascular function, our kidney function. And so actually a lot of the problems that we attribute to larger body size can actually be traced to this yo-yo dieting and the havoc that that wreaks on our metabolism. And it's just incredibly unfair to subject a child to that purely based on a number that we see on the scale. And instead of giving them medical care that they need, it's it's almost like so ridiculous to even say like, of course we give kids the medical care that they need. Well, you know, talking about stigma, talking about how the medical community approaches this, I always say like, you'll have a family in the room and there is a stigma that someone who is on the lower end of the percentile is not having technically the same conversations about Mm -hmm. what they're eating and exercise as someone who's on the higher percentile. When in actuality, every family, regardless of what they look like, you know, regardless Mm -hmm. of the weight on the scale, nutrition, exercise, sleep, health, these are all conversations that should be had with every family, right? But what happens, and I see this often, and it's also what I saw in my training. um, And also just, you know, and like I said, in my current practice is that those conversations are happening more with people who are on the higher percentile. And that is a stigma, right? Because you're assuming that that family 
is not taking care of their health or whatever mm-hmm. you're thinking versus we should be having this, like you said, this is a part of health conversation, mm-hmm. right? Like, are we, like you said perfectly, are we getting varied nutrients, right? Meaning, are mm-hmm. you trying to get stuff from different food groups? Mm-hmm. Are you exercising? Are you prioritizing water over sugary drinks? Like, these are conversations, whether you were on the fifth percentile or the 99th percentile, mm-hmm. which is really important. And from a stigma perspective, what I often see is that we do not have those conversations or a lot of physicians are not having those conversations with children who are on the lower percentiles. And then they're not getting the education on this sort of health mindset in terms mm-hmm. of approach to food and health mindset. And that to me is a big problem because we are using image. We are using numbers on a scale mm-hmm. to dictate our guidance when it really should be. This is something that every family should be getting, regardless of the number on the scale and the percentile that child's on. Yeah, it's really unfair um, to both ends of the spectrum. Of course, people in the larger bodies are subject to the most stigma here, but Mm -hmm. weight stigma does not help anyone. It doesn't help anyone lose weight. (laughs) And it just also does not help any individual in our society thrive. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you're talking about both ends because I do Mm -hmm. see it. You know, I see, Mm -hmm. obviously I know that there is absolutely more societal stigma for those on the higher end of weight uh, percentiles and stuff like that. But I also see a lot of weight stigma for leaner, I give an example of like leaner teenage boys coming into my office. Like they also struggle a lot with body image. Um, Mm -hmm. They also struggle a lot with weight and disordered eating. You know, they end up trying to put on weight with cat, like stuff that they find online and different things. (laughs) And it's because of the pressure they feel of having to look like a bodybuilder, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that is still present in 2022 when we're recording this episode. So like I said, I just think it's so important. Now, you know, the question I kind of alluded to earlier is that when I talked about this on my Instagram, a lot of health professionals were like, Hey, you know, childhood obesity is a really big concern. So I'm going to talk about it. But Mm. what I want to ask you is from your experience, why shouldn't we be helping kids lose weight by dieting? And do you also feel like we want to say, Hey, you're obese. You need to Mm. do something about it. Like, how do we approach these conversations? If we are feeling like, There is a concern, not about the weight. I'm talking about the lifestyle, right? The health Mm -hmm. mindset. How do we have these uh, conversations to actually see change? Yeah, well, so first of all, I want to clarify that the words overweight and obesity are considered very stigmatizing in Mm -hmm. the um, health at every size community. And when I use them, I use them with quotes or I put an asterisk in some of the vowels um, because uh, there is a lot of evidence that hearing the word at all, hearing your doctor say, you're obese and you need to do something about it is very stigmatizing to a person and um, shame never produces lasting change. No research that will ever show us that, that being shamed to do something will produce positive health outcomes. So uh, the word comes from the Latin having eaten oneself, you know, to extreme or something like that. And that's just not always the case. It's stigma. Absolutely. That, you know, we're thinking that any person in a very large body is having 12 bags of potato chips and 20 yes. sodas a day. It's not true. Yeah. Plenty of people either didn't have a positive feeding dynamics growing up, which is something that I'm going to talk about. We cannot separate the impact of poverty on body mm-hmm. size. And if you only have access to a certain type of calories, what that may do to your ultimate body size. I talked about weight cycling and how even the attempts to diet will lead a person to carry even more weight on their body. The word in and of itself is very stigmatizing. It's 
simply not true that people need to eat less and exercise more. That's, that's not the solution. The solution is far more complex and it lies in systemic change of, you know, getting people more access to uh, high quality, affordable foods, whether it's like walkable neighborhoods, things like that. That's part mm-hmm. of it, but it's also just not stigmatizing people so yeah. much. And if they are genetically predisposed to be in a larger body, letting that be the same as, you know, I have a genetic risk of breast cancer. It just is what mm-hmm. it is. Uh, you know, I'm not shaming myself for it. I am taking lifestyle measures to do what I can, but it just is what it is. And it's the body that I was born into. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with factor meals because they're ready in two minutes. No shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious factor meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash pedsdoctalk50 and use code pedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code pedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash pedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. So I think that um, what's really important when we think about the um, quote childhood obesity epidemic or crisis Mm -hmm. is that we can never separate our concern about kids being fat from our overall cultural anti-fat bias. And anti-fat bias is a form of prejudice the exact same way that discriminating against people on the basis of their race or their gender identity or their sexuality is. And there is never, ever going to be a positive outcome from any of that, right? Like that hardly needs to be said. Like we need to put an end to all of this. And we get real tripped up when it comes to weight because unlike, you know, say like, of course we shouldn't discriminate on the basis of race. When it comes to weight, we're like, well, but it's for their health. It's for your health. It's not discrimination. It's for your health. Unfortunately, this is really a cultural message that we have learned and you learn it in medical school. I learned it in dietitian school, but it's not actually fully rooted in science because the science is never actually looking 
looking, I mean, some of it is starting to right now, but the science is rarely looking at the harm of weight stigma. It's so it's not just that weight cycling, but weight stigma produces a stress burden we call allostatic load, which is um, sort of the cumulative physiological burden of chronic stress in life mm-hmm. events. You are also much more likely to have a high allostatic load um, if you are poor, or if a single mom, like anything where you don't have the support that you need and you are stressed. Um, this is going to take a physiological toll on your body. And part of that is going to be additional weight gain among many other things that are going to contribute to poor health. And we're not helping people with that. We're saying eat less, move more, which just contributes to even more stress when the person doesn't have the resources to do that. And when that might not even be effective in the first place, like why are we not delivering actual health care to individuals and just simplifying it, boiling it down to have some self-control and eat less. Like that's just not a message that is ever really going to produce change. And I think what we're not even gotten to is healthcare avoidance. If someone thinks that if they show up at the doctor and the doctor feels some moral obligation to tell them that they're fat, like people know (laughs) that they may not know that there are things they can do to support their body, regardless of their size. And they probably do not have a physician who's going to help them with that. But if you think that if you're going to show up at your doctor's appointment or your kid's doctor's appointment and just get harangued about the kid's weight, you're not going to go at all. Uh, And then you could miss issues that the kid or yourself is actually experiencing. And again, that's not good health care. So we really dug ourselves into a hole on this, I think. And I think that with kids in particular, it's not that there isn't something off, but I prefer to think of it as a childhood feeding crisis in that our parents have the time and energy to put regular family meals on the table with balanced nutrients, with vegetables, with repeated exposures so that kids could learn to accept more variety. Our parents so caught up in their own good food, bad food mentality and attempts to diet and lose weight that they're passing this on to the kids and the kids are, you know, restricting themselves from certain foods and then binging on them later. Like there's so many different things. And again, going back to access to high quality foods and the cost that comes from it, there's so many different things that go into, um, are these kids developing a healthy relationship with food? I don't want to say that we need to get them all healthy relationships with food to get their body sizes to be smaller. That's not the point. The point is that when you have a healthy relationship with food and when you are consistently getting the nutrients you need to grow and thrive, your health outcomes will be better regardless of your body size. Right. And I think that's what goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like the goal isn't for everyone to look the same in terms mm-hmm. of being the 50th percentile. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's not yep. the goal. The goal no. is that you are creating, like you said, a mindset of this is my health. Like you said, cardiovascular health. I'm able to move my body to, you mm-hmm. know, feel good, you know, like all these things. It's not the number. And I agree. We tend to still fall back on that. You know, I've had a lot of families come see me after seeing other clinicians who you said it perfectly. Like they were afraid to see that person Mm -hmm. because they just felt like, well, I don't want to go and be told that I'm not doing anything right. And be like almost yelled at Mm -hmm. for X, Y, and Z, you know, and that's not a constructive way of chatting about anything. And I'll talk to them about their health mindset, right? Like the family is doing a lot of great things. And I'm like, that's just genetics. Like you're on the higher percentile, but that's okay. Like we're not trying to make you a size two that's not what we need. Everyone's yeah. different. Like, yeah. it's just so frustrating because like you said, it's still 2022 and 
it is just a very unfortunate mindset. And we see it culturally, you know, we see it a lot of um, generational trauma is still there that parents may be trying to make the changes. Like you work with a lot of people in our generation, but maybe mm-hmm. their parents are still like in the peanut gallery, like talking about their children and grandchildren. And it's like, everyone's just trying to break through, even if they're trying to do it, it's like, there's still so much stigma behind all of this in terms of what percentile or what weight is deemed appropriate for mm-hmm. society. And it's just tragedy because I agree with you completely that it doesn't allow for any sort of discussion on health mindset. You know, when you go into someone and immediately they're like, well, you're overweight, you're obese, you got to do this. I agree with you. Like that terminology is filled with shame. It's filled with anti-fat bias. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it doesn't serve any purpose to me. So I agree. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't like using that terminology. I'd rather have discussions on what the family's doing, like you said, with nutrition and all of that. And obviously you brought up an amazing point about (laughs) poverty. You brought up Mm -hmm. an amazing point about lack of access to exercise. You know, it's Mm -hmm. very easy to say, well, why aren't you getting 30 minutes a day? Well, maybe they don't live in a neighborhood that has safety where they can go outside. You know, maybe they don't have a public park that's accessible, you know, Um, or maybe the parent works two jobs and, you know, the kid is safer indoors, like lots of things. And then with that, people just assume like, well, you're not healthy because you look X, Y, and Z. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's sad. Like it is a very difficult situation. And like you said, beautifully, that it can also lead back to that sort of binging because you just feel like, okay, I'm trying to lose weight. It didn't work. Or maybe you lost the weight. And like you said, survival response, you gain it back. Oh, well, I'm a failure. It didn't work. It's like a psychological Mm -hmm. thing. Oh yeah. Feel discouraged. And so then you start binging again and then it's the cycle repeats itself. I see it a lot with adults Mm -hmm. too. I didn't know that like adults who are thinking that they need to lose X amount by a certain time, get fit into their wedding dress, X, Mm -hmm. Y, and Z. It's like, it's a tragedy, like truly. And I love and applaud the work you do for children because it starts so young um, with how parents approach and how the healthcare community approaches this as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also important to point out um, it's a tragedy. It's also oppression. (laughs) It is oppression that is rooted um, actually in white supremacy. If we go uh, far enough back, um, a great read on this is Fearing Mm -hmm. the Black Body from uh, Professor Sabrina Strings. And we see that, um, you know, the Europeans (laughs) found that um, if their bodies were naturally smaller than the Africans, and so that must demonstrate superiority, right? And Mm -hmm. so um, this, this has been going on for hundreds of years that uh, the closer we are to thinness, the closer we are to whiteness. And um, in this perpetual cycle of starving ourselves in trying to achieve that, well, if you're starving, you're not going to be able to, I don't know, get a college degree, apply for a job, like all these things that might improve your quality of life because we're so stuck in this cycle of not giving our bodies what they need, right? And what does that allow for? Well, the people who are empowered to continue to be empowered and the people who are oppressed to continue to be oppressed. Uh, So it's tragic, but it's also incredibly unjust. And I don't mm-hmm. think enough people know about that. Well, even BMI, I think that I wonder yep. if that book talks about that, right? Oh, BMI absolutely. is yeah. also, yeah, yeah I would yeah. love to read that because yeah. BMI is absolutely racially triggering. And I yes. see that because we are assuming that, yeah, your BMI is 90th percentile. And I will be honest, a lot of my African-American black population mm-hmm. does have a higher BMI, not everybody. Okay. Right. But if yeah. we want to do a better comparison, quote unquote, we would compare people the same ethnic group. But even that, why are we comparing people? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you don't compare anybody. Yes. Like, there's no need to compare because what is the standard? We're holding people. It's so frustrating to me because we're mm. holding people 
on these percentiles, you know, and I talked, I want to really briefly for anyone who is unfamiliar with what I talk about percentiles, percentiles should be used in a medical setting to look at trends, meaning I want to see how you're trending from the last time I saw you. So for example, if you're in my visit and you were the 85th percentile at the last visit, and now you have dropped to the 20th or Mm -hmm. now that you have gone off to the hundredth, that's a big weight gain or weight loss. So the conversations are going to be, how are you doing overall? How is Mm -hmm. your stress level? What are you doing in terms of exercise, all of that? What are you doing in terms of nutrition? Like there's so many different things happening there, but it's not a, oh, you're the hundredth percentile. So automatically there's an issue or Mm -hmm. you're the fifth percentile automatically an issue, which I think we often talk about in visits, right? Like parents, even on uh, kids who have failure to thrive, quote unquote, right? Their children come in lower percentiles. I'm Indian. Indian people are super Mm -hmm. lean. Most of our children are on the fifth to 10th percentile. And that's Mm -hmm. very common, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my Indian families will DM me on my Instagram and be like, Hey, my doctor's saying that my kid is too skinny and they need to eat like a, this, you know, healthy fats. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. but you're also very thin. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. are they trending? Like we need to look at it as trends. So if anyone's not familiar, your percentile is a good gauge. Like I like Mm -hmm. percentiles to show me trends, but it should not be that we are using that as a grade, right? Like, oh, so 95th is better or worse than 80th or 50th. That's not how it should be. Your goal is not to get to a certain percentile ever. Um, Your goal is to really just have it be a overall indication of trends on how much weight we're gaining, how much weight we're losing. And it can set up a trigger for me of like, oh, hmm, we're losing a lot of weight from the last visit. Is that intentional? Was that Mm -hmm. accidental? Could this be something medical, right? And even for weight gain, to be honest, like sometimes I do see 30, 40 pounds in a year and I'm thinking, is this a hypothyroid situation? Mm -hmm. Is this something in the gut? Like, do we need to intervene more here? And that goes back to the medical picture. Like you said, this is a big picture of having conversations about their overall well-being. Yeah, I do the exact same thing in my practice. Growth charts are very important uh, in my practice. And isn't it funny, like, you know, the very nature of percentiles is that various people are going to be at various points <laughs> and to try mm-hmm. to get from one to uh, another intentionally defies the very nature of percentile. But I totally agree. When I see a big jump in one direction or another, because you know, I'm not assessing for hypothyroidism or anything like that, what I'm always looking for, is there um, any kind of drastic change in the child's feeding dynamics or social situations? You know, parents got divorced, started a new school, global pandemic, you know, is, did anything happen to perhaps trigger the child, um, you know, body image concerns are absolutely at play here. Um, emotional eating because of lack of a constructive outlet for their feelings, things like that. Did anything happen in the child's life to trigger their eating in one way or the other, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, stress and anxiety leading to poor appetite or, you know, leading to uh, binge eating or whether there's a body image concern and potential eating disorder, um, there's 95% of the time there's going to be something like that. And instead of going to, for a lower weight child, like put butter on everything and for a higher weight child, go on a restrictive diet. Both of those ignore the issue. Mm -hmm. We have to correct whatever the actual issue is. And so, so, so many times it comes back to the child and the family, not having the social support that they need to cope with whatever else is going on. And then, um, you know, sort of the cherry on top is all of this messages from diet culture of good food, bad food, eat this, not that, um, that gets people just so stressed out about what their kids are eating, what they're eating, the foods are available in the home. And we can't forget that restriction. Um, you know, if a family says, you know, no chips, no soda, no candy in my house. And if those are important foods to the kid, 
they will feel restricted. They will find a way to get access to them and they will probably binge on them when they do. Mm -hmm. And then it turns into a whole cycle of shame of I have no control around food, uh, you know, and making food the issue, which is really just a band-aid for whatever the social issues are, whether it's anti-fat bias or not having a constructive emotional outlet uh, for your feelings other than emotional eating. Yeah. Uh, and, And again, we're not doing anybody any favors here. Yeah. Listen, my husband's an ER doctor and I've been very open about this on my social media Mm. channel, but he is fed into a lot of this diet culture, Mm. um, you know, organic, you can't Mm -hmm. have certain things. And I tell him flat out, I'm like, listen, you, cause he gets upset when I bring in certain foods. I'm like, I'm telling you right now that if I don't bring this food into the house and have it in moderation, which I'm capable of doing as an adult now, and I'm very proud Mm -hmm. of myself, Mm. I'm going to find it and I'm going to eat it in my car. So we have two options here. We can either have it in the house And I'm going to eat it in moderation. I'm talking about things like chips and ice cream. Okay. Mm -hmm. These are things that serve a purpose in my life. Like you said, like, I love it. I think it's wonderful. I think when we talk about moderation, like I get a tub of ice cream and I'm able to let it last two, three weeks and Mm -hmm. I take it out in a bowl and I eat it and I enjoy it and I feel happy. And that's awesome with food. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And kids should, you're right. Kids could do that. But I'm very clear that yes, if you do not allow like you said, that that moderation or that access, you're right. They're going to go to a birthday party and they're going to go mm-hmm. buck wild and they're just going to feel like, oh my gosh, give me the dopamine right now. Like, mm-hmm. give me this rush for that I've been lacking. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. I love that moderation talk. And that kind of brings Mm -hmm. me to my, I guess, my last question. So if a child's weight is trending high or low, like I mentioned about like Mm -hmm. seeing some concerns in terms of like really steep increases in weight, we can talk about that. So Mm -hmm. what interventions or conversations are positive and helpful that can actually help them have that health mindset versus a weight goal mindset, weight loss mindset in terms of getting to a number? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I think that we need to recognize is that parents are going to need a lot more support than they can probably get in a 15 minute visit with their pediatrician um, on things like this, which is why I hope that every pediatrician has um, a uh, registered dietitian or other, um, even a family therapist who specializes in feeding and feeding dynamics and can refer the family to additional counseling um, with that additional person. Um, You know, I see some of my families for an hour every other week, you know, if their insurance plan will cover that. And it's um, a lot like mental health counseling, which I think, you know, especially with COVID, we're recognizing that like more people need mental health counseling. And I think in particular um, with the way that most people in the U.S. did not grow up with positive feeding dynamics, um, we, we kind of all need some extra support on this Um, So the kinds of things that I cover with my families when we see the weight trending higher low is I don't go straight to eat less, um, move more. I actually don't usually address the specifics of what food is going on the plate in the first couple sessions at all. Um, what I'm looking for is this kid eating consistently throughout the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and perhaps, you know, afternoon snack, evening snack, maybe even a morning snack, depending on what the situation is. Are the foods a particular mix of protein, fat, and carbohydrates? So I'm not going to tell you serve brown rice and not white rice. Yes. I don't think that's culturally sensitive. I'm going to say, is there a carbohydrate on the plate? Um, because, uh, you know, these are just... It's just a fact of human nature that to grow and thrive, kids need protein, fat, and carbohydrates, and then we can get into macronutrients, but that's something, you know, that's a bridge I cross a little bit later on. Um, I'm always looking for whether the child has access to preferred foods, like you were saying, like doesn't have to be every last thing in the house is chips or candy, but does the child have enough access to that on the one hand? So they don't feel restricted, which can lead to binging, which can lead to higher body size. On the other hand, for kids in smaller body sizes and bigger body sizes as well, um, if the foods that are available don't feel safe to them, either maybe there's a sensory issue or they have selective eating for whatever reason, their intake may be too low because there's not enough safe foods for them or their intake of whatever is safe enough for them may be too high high and that may be contributing to part of the issue. So does the child feel safe around food and are the parents, this is called responsive feeding, are the parents going out of their way to learn what the child's needs are and provide those foods in a structured way um, so that the child just feels safe and natural around foods. I always want to know how uh, the parents are talking about food in the house. Um, You know, I've said, you know, the good food, bad food mentality a couple of times. I don't recommend that at all. Um, Even in what you're talking about um, when you use moderation for yourself, um, it is not because you learned potato chips, bad broccoli, good. I want parents to, and parents need more support on this because this is not something that you're getting from, you know, media messages. I use a concept called gentle nutrition with my families, which is that there are no, no good or bad foods, but the foods are going to make us feel differently. And it's really, and and different people are going to feel differently with different foods. Um, So it's really about getting in touch with, well, how do I feel when I eat only candy or when I eat only potato chips? And when there's a lot of shame coming into the conversation with this good food, bad, food that kind of overrides our ability to understand what's going on in our bodies. So how are parents talking about food in the house? Is the kid able to follow their own appetite? Is there any pressure? Pressure in feeding is never, ever, ever going to work out, whether it is you need to take three more bites of your broccoli 
or you need to stop eating the rice and have some chicken or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, pressure and feeding is never going to work out. I always want kids to learn to trust their own appetite so that they can do what you're describing when you're as an adult of like, yeah, I'm going to have some ice cream. Like I don't need or want to have the whole pint. It can stay in my freezer. I'm not going to obsess about it because I'm going to have some tomorrow and that's going to be delicious too. Yes. This is relying on your own internal body signals um, and what you have learned about nutrition of like, and ice cream is not going to be the only thing I eat. I am going to eat right. vegetables. I am going to eat whole grains, you know, because I've learned this about nutrition. And there's no um, morality associated with it one way or the other. It's just foods that I enjoy. And of course, you're going to enjoy it in a way that makes sense for your family and your cultural values. And I'm going to do it in a different way. And I'm certainly not going to come in and dictate um, how somebody else needs to do it other than like, is there protein, fat and carbon involved? So definitely how parents are talking about the food. You mentioned water over soda, um, things like, is the child snacking throughout the day on, um, it's usually simple carbs and things like soda or sports drinks. It's not that those foods in and of themselves need to be demonized, but how can we put more structure around them? You know, if the child likes a particular snack, can we serve it with a meal with that protein, fat and carbs? If the child would feel restricted, if they never got to have soda, can we say, okay, you know, we have soda um, once a day or once a week with dinner, whatever works for the family, you know, um, but instead of um, sort of snacking on it all day long, which is terrible for oral health <laughs> also, you know, not a dentist, but, um, and it's going to interrupt their appetite for the nourishing foods that are likely available at meals. But then my next question is, are they available at meals? Because parents do need to step in as the caregiver and provide mm -hmm. these foods consistently throughout the day. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people think that like to raise intuitive eaters, the kids need to be in charge of their own food decisions. If they want to go to the pantry and grab a bag of chips, um, they should be able to. And I do think that like a teenager should have the skills to make that decision, but not for younger kids. Like what's really good for younger kids is to know that the parent is the provider. The parent yeah. puts the roof over their house. The parent provides the clothes and the parent provides the food, but does it in a responsive way so that the child feels like their needs are getting met. So these are all the interventions that I work with families on. And then once all that is in place, we might talk about exposures to more vegetables or, uh, you know, joyful movement. Like what is a way, you know, if the kid doesn't like sports, what about a family walk or a bike ride, right? But I don't actually get to those interventions until we really have the positive feeding dynamics in place because it's putting the cart before the horse. It's saying like, um, okay, well, you know, you need to eat more vegetables. Well, if the kid is afraid of vegetables, Vegetables, or if the parent doesn't know how to prepare them, or, you know, if they're just not a culturally appropriate food for the family, then that advice is not going to land and it's not going to produce sustainable change. Um, so I like to help families kind of get into a groove with their feeding dynamics first. And then, you know, all the baby steps of things that we've heard before, you know, exercise, five servings of vegetables a day. Um, but I really think people have to be in a good place for that to be received. And then once all that's going on, if the child's body size still hasn't changed, <laughs> but I can assess that they are meeting their nutrition needs, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, I will fax back the doctor saying, I don't think we have a problem here. Yes. Yeah. I love that because yeah. you're not, again, the goal is not the number. Like it's, yeah. it really is like you said, and you're telling me that we can't do that in a 15 minute pediatric session. I mean, obviously, <laughs> yes, yeah. um, you're right. Like, I love it. I love what you just said. Everything is right on par. And it makes me like, it makes me kind of sad sometimes because this is all stuff that I love talking about, but of course you are right on that. We do not have 
enough time. And and that's the point, right? We were supposed to refer when needed. Um, It does break my heart a little bit that a lot of the times in my community, I, you know, I do have a large Medicaid population and Mm -hmm. trying to get them in with um, nutritionists and our dietitians, it's Mm -hmm. much more difficult for me. And I, it's hard Mm -hmm. because a lot, I do feel like we do need to have more of these conversations about all the things that you mentioned, especially, you know, talking about, you know, access, talking about what are the parents' views on vegetables? What are they eating? Like, what are they putting on their plates also? Um, and then also just like the access to everything that we mentioned. So such great tips, Diana. Mm-hmm. I loved this conversation so much. Like it is such an important one. And I just wish that, you know, everyone who listens shares it with everyone, because this is just such <sighs> an important thing that we all need to kind of be more aware about, whether we are a healthcare professional, a parent, whether this is, it doesn't seem like this will ever be a quote unquote issue for us. It's important to create some understanding of how we communicate when we talk about weight or why are we even talking about numbers and all that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What would be your final message for everyone listening today? Oh, um, well, that uh, if you feel like something is not going well with all of the things that we've described, I hate to put more in parents' courts because I know we're also overwhelmed, but it really does start with you as the parent working on your own mindset about these things and perhaps your own relationship with food, um, because that's going to be the number one factor that is going to influence your kids. And we mm-hmm. really need to rely on um, something I call our own intuitive eating voice, which is, you know, we'd say if your kid's asking for a snack and they already had one, instead of just black and white, no, we already had snack time. You say, oh, you know, like, I don't, they didn't actually eat that much today. They probably do want a snack and, you know, versus just sort of like, no snacks are bad or whatever it is. Um, So it really does. uh, This is why I work with both kids and adults in my practice. It really does help um, for the parent to start to wrap their head around um, these kinds of things. Um, Maybe do some additional reading. I mentioned uh, that one book, Fearing the Black Body. I'd be happy to send you uh, other books you could link to in your show notes to get started on all of this. Um, Because I really, like you're saying, you know, end that generational cycle. I really do think that we can, um, but it starts with us as the parents doing the work. Absolutely. And yes, definitely send me those links. And where can my listeners find you in terms of repeating your Instagram handle, resources, all of that information? Yeah, my Instagram handle is anti-dietkids, so anti.diet.kids. Mm-hmm. I'm also on Facebook at the same uh, name, and I have a free Facebook group called Raising Anti-Diet Kids, which I'll send you the link to, which is a great place for parents who are just getting started on this journey to you know, unpack like what they learn from their own families and what they want to do instead. But if they don't have the support to do it, you know, questions like that. I'm always posting, um, you know, more and more resources, like, you know, articles that come out about how uh, anti-fat bias is harming us all and, you know, things about feeding kids. I'm always posting those in there. Um, My website is tinyseednutrition.com. And I do work with parents nationwide for coaching. Um, And then within Oklahoma, where I'm located, I provide uh, medical nutrition therapy, um, which is often a service that is covered by insurance. As you mentioned, I'm a podcast host and I have a show called The Messy Intersection. Mm-hmm. And I've called it that because I am trying to address this very, very messy place where we don't have support, especially when we become moms, our own bodies change, um, our own, you know, ability to, I don't know, meal prep and, you know, yeah. uh, go out to dinner with, you know, on a romantic dinner date, all these things change. And we're trying to figure out how to feed a child in a way that will uh, both produce a healthy physical 
physiological child in a child with a healthy relationship with food. And we're navigating all of this stuff, this very messy place um, where we yes. really don't have a ton of support. So I talk a lot about intuitive eating on there, raising intuitive eaters, um, feeding dynamics that I've mentioned so much. I talk a lot about that on the show. Um, and so I hope that listeners will check that out as well. Oh, I can't wait to link all of this. And truly, Diana, this was a pleasure. Like I said it at the Mm -hmm. beginning that I get to talk to such amazing guests and you are obviously one of those people. It's just so refreshing the way you speak about this in such a compassionate way, the way you're trying to really change the world. It's just so nice to see. (laughs) And, you know, the Facebook group, your website, obviously all the resources you give, just such an honor. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that so much. And I love the work that you're doing as well. And for everyone listening, if you love this episode, which I really loved it, like I said, I get to talk to these amazing guests, but sometimes I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is like amazing. So if you love this episode as much as I love recording it with Diana, I want you to leave a review, call Diana out, you know, call it anti-diet kids, say how much you love this information. And of course you have to share it on Instagram stories, tag both me and her so that we can reshare it as well and more people can discover this episode. And I can't wait to welcome another guest next time. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, TV. We'll talk to you soon. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.